you're listening to a podcast from the Royal Statistical Society. My name is Nathan Green. I'm part of the medical section. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Crystal Donnelly. She's currently employed at the University of Oxford and Imperial College London. We're going to be talking about a fairly recent public lecture given for the Bradford Hill uh, Memorial Lecture on the 3rd of July this year on real-time analysis of COVID-19. Well, before we do that, Crystal, would you please give us a bit of background and maybe a flavour of the kind of work that you've um, working on? Sure. So I came to the UK in 1992, having just finished my PhD. And my first job was as a stats lecturer in the Department of Maths and Stats in University of Edinburgh. And there I did lots of teaching inference, which was a good thing because then I learned inference much better. <laughs> a bit of making sure you really cement those principles by teaching. But I also worked on some HIV work because I'd done HIV work as part of my uh, master's while I was at Harvard. So from there, I moved to join Roy Anderson's group at University of Oxford, which was the Wellcome Trust Center for Epidemiology of Infectious Diseases. And that, that was really when I joined the group of people who are now form largely the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology. A lot of senior people moved, well, and a lot of junior people who are now senior people, because it was back in um, 2000 that we moved uh, to form that new department. And so it, then it was two years ago that I moved from Imperial to Oxford, part of my time. So I'm now 80% at Oxford in the stats department and 20% still at Imperial and infectious disease happy. The things that I've worked on, um, the most intensive things, and in some ways the most rewarding things have been the responses to outbreaks. That was not planned. That was because six months after I started working with Roy's group in Oxford, there was the announcement in the House of Commons that variant CJD, BCJD had been it had been connected to BSE or mad cow disease in cattle. And so although it wasn't a proven link at that point, it appeared that it was exposure to BSE that had caused variant CJD. And so then working with Roy and working with Neil Ferguson, we became the group, first group outside of the government to have access to detailed data on BSE. So it was real time. It seemed very fast moving, but of course the disease itself moves slowly because it's got an incubation period we found of about five years on average. So although I think of it as a fast, my first fast moving and intensive summer, it was because the policy and the political atmosphere was making changes very quickly in response to this past exposure. So a lot of the human exposure to cattle that had been infected with BSE was already done and couldn't, couldn't be addressed at that point. But there was a lot of political pressure to limit any future exposure. And so there was some um, focused culling and some bans on particular cattle being consumed. So that turned out to be one, the first of a series of outbreaks that I worked on, including foot and mouth disease in UK in 2001, SARS, first coronavirus I'd worked on in 2003, uh, pandemic influenza, MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a coronavirus, Ebola outbreaks, including the very large one in West Africa, Zika, and now this new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. 
Well, it's like a, a who's who of infectious diseases. It's an impressive list. So, yeah, so that's brought us up to date. I suppose like a year ago, there was very relatively much less interest in mathematical modelling of infectious diseases and outbreak analysis. But now it's basically front page news and has been majority of the year. So when I'm sure people are interested in how you actually uh, go about the this real-time analysis that you've talked about. A good place to start is what are kind of the key questions that you want to ask? Like, what do you really want to know? And how can you go about answering those questions? So one of the things that you want to know very early on is the incubation period. That's the time from exposure to showing the symptoms of disease. And that's important because we need to know if say we were in the same room and it turned out that I was potentially exposing you to something, we need to know how long you should be followed up or how long you should isolate yourself before you're confident that in fact, if you don't show the signs of disease, you are clear of it. And that's important because on the one hand, if you follow up people for too short a time, you then give them the confidence to go out back out into the community, potentially exposing others. If you keep them uh, you know, sort of isolated for too long, and potentially being visited on a daily basis, which they do, for example, for uh, people who would have been exposed to Ebola, then that's a long time and a lot of resource that you're devoting to that. And it's at the very early stage that you actually get data on the incubation period. Later, it's much harder to do that. And the reason for that is that it's at the early stage where you're more likely to be able to identify pairs of infector infectee. Later, there are potentially multiple sources in the community that could have infected somebody. So even if they get infected in the same household, you can't be confident or at least not absolutely certain that one infected the other. But if you have relatively little infection in a community and you have people who, you know, their only exposure to someone who's shown the signs of disease is this person they went shopping with on a particular day, that's particularly valuable because then you have a relatively short window of when they got infected. Within household transmission is not so useful because you expose those people over a long period. And so you don't know when they got infected, but if it's, you know, if we only came into contact with each other for this interview, and then it turned out I was infectious, we'd wait to see how long till you showed the symptom of disease and you would be a valuable data point in giving us data on the incubation period. Another thing that we very much want to know it, for a new disease is what the case fatality ratio is. So what proportion of those people who show signs of disease that makes them a case go on to die of that disease? That's important for understanding the severity of the disease to know how to prioritize it, because of course there are lots of infections that we get exposed to, uh, but also to provide a benchmark for when you have uh, treatments so that you know what the severity is in the absence of treatment, and so then what sort of um, effect you might have with a particular drug. Okay, so what's the difference between a CFR and IFR? CFR and IFR, so one is the case fatality ratio, and the other is the infection fatality ratio. So the difference, the difference between those is that, well, let's start with where they're the same. They're the same if essentially everyone who gets infected with the pathogen shows clinical signs of disease. So everybody who is an infection becomes a case. 
And that was the case with SARS. So we only worried about the case fatality ratio. That is very much not the case with COVID-19. And so a case fatality ratio, it's defined. You have to decide what is sufficient to call somebody a case, but then you can estimate what proportion of those people go on to die of the disease. And we know it very much depends on age. We didn't know that from the beginning, but we've seen that pattern. But the infection fatality ratio is not for just including everyone who shows the signs of disease, but including those people who are infected and don't. So for example, if you're testing people as they came back on one of these repatriation flights early on, in some countries, they screened everybody as they came off the plane. It was then possible to follow up what proportion of those that tested positive at that point went on to develop the clinical signs of disease and how many went on to die. Now, that way you have a denominator, which is everybody who tested positive, and you have a denominator, which is those that tested positive and showed clinical signs and the number who died. The issue, of course, is that because planes, even a full plane that carries a couple hundred people or a few hundred people, that's not very many from the point of view of a limited number of those would be infected and the data is relatively small. So then there are other data sources that we can bring in to try to look at that. But if you're only testing people who are clinically affected, you can't then work out the infection fatality ratio, the IFR. And we know that those two things are quite different because a substantial portion of people don't show any symptoms and certainly don't show symptoms that would be severe enough for them to seek clinical care. How does estimation of the uh, CFR and IFR, how does that change during the course of an outbreak? When we want to estimate the CFR, one of the big challenges was that there's an estimator which has a lot of appeal because of its simplicity and it's just, you know, intrinsically it looks like what it, it should deliver is that if you take the number of deaths divided by the number of cases, that looks like on the face of it that that should be a good estimate of the case fatality ratio. Well, let's put the infection fatality ratio to one side for the moment. Now that works really well if we have good surveillance at the end of an epidemic, when you know all the deaths and you know all of the cases, and then it's just deaths divided by the total number of cases. That's not so easy, and it's quite misleading in the middle of an epidemic when the, it's ongoing. And that's because it can take a substantial period of time, weeks in the case of SARS, between someone being um, defined as being a case, so going into the denominator of that calculation, then having to wait that period of time to see if they go on to die of the disease. And that delay meant that there was an underestimation of the number of deaths that would subsequently result from those cases. And this is particularly true when you have an increasing incidence. A lot of those cases will not have been watched long enough to know what their outcome will be. And you get a substantial underestimate of what the case fatality ratio is. So there are ways that you can adjust for that, what proportion of time you've watched people for. In the simplest case, you can adjust for that by saying, okay, how many people have died? How many people have recovered? And then take the proportion of how many people with outcomes. So it's deaths divided by deaths plus recoveries. That will be a good unbiased estimator if, and this is an important if, the average time from being a case to dying is roughly the same as being a case to recovering. And it's possible to imagine scenarios where either of those were shorter, 
either that deaths when they happened happened quickly or that people recovered quickly and those that eventually died lingered on a long time. And those can lead to then to either an overestimate or an underestimate of the case fatality ratio. When we add in the additional complexity of the IFR, the infection fatality ratio, things are more complicated still because then we have to estimate this very elusive quantity of what proportion of infections don't ever get picked up as cases. And that will be different at different times. When you have a lot of testing capacity up and you can say, okay, if you show any of these symptoms, and we didn't have the same description of symptoms early on that we have now. For example, it was initially looking at fever and continuous cough, but then it was um, determined that the additional third symptom that was quite important was this loss of taste or smell. And so if you don't have that in the mix early on, you may miss people who just have that symptom. Uh, but also you early on were asking people to stay at home if they showed symptoms, unless they were severe enough to need medical care or had an underlying condition that made them higher risk. So intrinsically you were getting either higher risk people or people who were more severely affected coming forward to be tested when there was limited testing available. Whereas now, Mostly we have as many tests as people need and we're encouraging people who um, show the symptoms at all to seek testing. That hasn't always been sufficient that every one of those people can, but it's much closer now than it was before. So we're getting a different case mix. We're getting more people who probably are unlikely to be severely affected being tested. And so that's quite tricky and we have to, to work out other ways of getting at the proportion of people who are infected and don't go on to show symptoms. That can, we can get diff that different ways through random testing of the community and clear questioning as to people, what symptoms they have or haven't had. Um, alternatively, I mentioned testing people as they come out of repatriation flights and following those up prospectively. But for the amount of information that you get, it, it's quite um, time, and cost intensive to try and get at that ratio of what people, what proportion of people are infected actually go on to show symptoms. It's really interesting. So there's, if you want to judge how an outbreak is progressing, I can see the extra difficulty because the things that you're measuring and your the type of sample that you're collecting is changing. It's also the definition of things is changing. So to actually compare between two time points seems particularly difficult. You might be measuring different in a different way. Indeed. And so that's one of the reasons why we concentrated a number of our analyses on the number of deaths per day on the basis that, you know, people who were severe enough to be at, at any risk of dying of the disease would definitely have been tested even early on. But then you see, because we see such a big age gradient, when you get different populations exposed, for example, when we had um, individuals being exposed in care homes. Obviously, those are people who are considerably older and maybe more frail as part of the reason why they're in the care home. So therefore, the number of deaths per capita of the people coming forward would be higher. Recently, we've been seeing a greater proportion of infections happening in younger adults who are much less likely to go on to have severe outcomes, including death. And so per capita, uh, of infection, we're seeing fewer deaths. So there's this difference between looking at you know these these waves and what people are calling this the second wave, 
why haven't we seen the deaths getting as high? And part of that is due to the case mix. It's also partly that we're, we're not seeing as many infections per day yet as we would have seen in the middle of the first wave. But it's very hard to come up with absolute numbers on how did what we're experiencing today relate to the peak of the epidemic back in the spring. And that's because we didn't have enough testing capacity to compare those directly. So we have to do it indirectly, looking at hospital admissions and so on, and um, deaths within certain age groups. Thanks. So we've talked about incubation periods, and we've talked about uh, the CFR and IFR. I think it'd be remiss not to talk about our noughts briefly, which uh, might be like word of the year um, in Webster's Dictionary. But what does our naught tell you about an outbreak and how it's changing? Okay, so R0 is the average number of new infections caused by a single infection. Or if we can define it in terms of cases, because we know that not all infections become cases, the average number of cases caused by a single case. So uh, that that ratio should be similar. Um, And so that's in a fully naive population will be R0. And because we hadn't had the human population exposed to this pathogen before, we were all as naive as we were going to be at the beginning of this. Uh, And then over time, the effective reproduction number changes. Now that changes in part because some people will have been infected and may have at least short-term, possibly long-term, we have to wait and see, uh, immunity to infection. And so that's this so-called starting to build up herd immunity. And that's, you know, it's sometimes herd immunity gets talked about as a zero one thing. Thing. We either have it or not. And in fact, it's something that's a gradual process of growing up um, some immunity within the population that we would expect to happen at least to an extent in an inf- infectious disease outbreak. But there's also the fact that the effective reproduction number can change as our behavior changes. So as we went into the most extreme social distancing of trying to stay home except when absolutely necessary to go out, And of course, there were first responders who had to still keep going out. Um, That reduces a lot of the uh, interpersonal contacts, which reduces opportunities for transmission of disease, which of course will bring the the effective R down. And so R0 is very important for how things were, uh, but it doesn't intrinsically tell us how much um, restriction we need to, in terms of whether or not you should open uh, restaurants, how what the role of schools is. So we need to get more information on where transmission is happening. And also part of it is going to be waiting to see for a particular combination of measures, encouraging people to wash their hands, encouraging people to stay two meters apart, encouraging people to um, limit their contacts unless they absolutely have to. That combined with other rules about the total number of people who can can meet together indoors or outdoors, all those things come together to reduce opportunities for transmission. And the key thing we need to do, ideally we'd like to get R to, to zero, but that's extremely difficult. And that would mean lots of other things had to shut down more than we can manage as a society. But if we can get the, the effective reproduction number to be less than one, then the case numbers go down. And then if they get to very low numbers, 
um, producing very a very low risk of death in the population, then we can think about, well, you know, what can we ease off in terms of the restrictions uh, and allow us to have more of the different sorts of society that we need for other purposes. For example, you don't want people who um, are experiencing symptoms that could be cancer feeling like they can't go out and get those checked out because then we could have additional deaths due to that. And that is one of the things that we have to look at in this is not just the deaths due to COVID, but the excess mortality. And the excess mortality is going to be a combination of those deaths that were identified as being directly due to COVID, those deaths that were due to COVID, but for some reason the person wasn't tested, or if the test wasn't 100% sensitive at the particular time that they were tested, they didn't come out as positive. And finally, those people who may have died as a result of you know, not having sought healthcare soon enough for some other risk factor, because they were either there wasn't enough healthcare available, depending on the setting, or just that they were reluctant to put themselves at risk. On the other hand, there were probably some uh, factors where the risk went down. For example, if people are driving a lot less, there should be many fewer car accident uh, fatalities. And so it's going to be a combination of the things that were increased as well as potentially a few things that were decreased as well. And that will be the, the final impact on us that we can look back at at the end of this year and compare it to previous years.